The following podcast is from Arlington Countryside Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org. All right, transition time into my big joke for the morning, okay? Here it is. What high school, and by the way, thank you, Dale Hugo. I got this from Dale Hugo. What high school did Martin Luther go to? What high school did Martin Luther go to? See, actually, it's a trick question because he was in reform school. (laughs) Hey, there's no such thing as a Martin Luther joke book, okay? That's the best we could come up with. I thought, well, I didn't think it was too bad. That's pretty good. All right, here's the deal this morning. This morning, we're going to answer the Reformation and the principles of the Reformation help us to answer one of life's most deep and important questions. I think one of the deepest philosophical questions that any man or woman can wrestle with is the question, why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? And as we unpack the final sola this morning, I think we'll find a crystal clear answer to that question. What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? It's found in the principles of the Reformation. This Tuesday, October 31st, isn't just Halloween. It's also Reformation Day. And this particular year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. On Tuesday, exactly 500 years earlier, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, and it was commonly seen as the launch of a great revival, of of bringing the people and the church back to biblical truth, biblical principles, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of key players in the Reformation. Martin Luther wasn't the only one. There was many men and women, many of whom gave their lives who were a part of the Reformation, but Martin Luther is definitely the most prominent, the most well-known. He's kind of like the face of the movement. And what I'd like to do now, I'd like to show you a, a brief but very serious and scholarly video that lays out the basics of Martin Luther and the Reformation that he ignited 500 years ago. So watch the screens. This is the story of Martin Luther. He got up to some pretty adventurous things. He was kidnapped by knights on horseback, lived in disguise in a castle, and helped some nuns escape from a convent by hiding them in barrels. But as a young man, he was troubled by a deep sense that he wasn't right with God. Once, in a thunderstorm, a lightning bolt nearly struck him. He thought he was going to die. He cried out for help to one of the saints, saying rashly, Save me, and I'll become a monk. He survived. And so, true to his word, he gave up his studies as a lawyer and became a monk. His friends and family said he was wasting his talent. In the monastery, he started reading the Bible. He discovered that it was God's mercy and love that was all that was needed to be right with God. And for the first time in his life, he found a deep peace with God. Luther was invited to be a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. He taught through books of the Bible, and his lectures were popular. Even ordinary people from the town came along. 
In those days, the Catholic Church was telling Christians that their good behavior could earn them heaven. But Luther knew from the Bible that no amount of good works could earn you forgiveness. Not even the Pope was able to give forgiveness from God. Only God could do that. Luther saw that the church had left behind what the Bible taught and was even making things up for its own gain. He decided he must teach against these false ideas. He made his complaints public by nailing them to the place in town where people published important documents, the door of the castle church. He explained that it wasn't possible to buy God's forgiveness or to live a life that was good enough to deserve to know God. His writings showed that God wants to forgive the wrong we've done and that this is only possible because Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay the punishment that our wrong deserved. Jesus did this as he died in our place. Luther's ideas quickly spread throughout Europe thanks to a recent invention, the printing press. The Pope wrote a document saying that Luther had to take it all back and if he didn't, he'd be treated as a heretic. Luther refused and publicly burned a copy of the Pope's letter. Luther's ideas shook things up religiously, politically, and culturally. He was soon summoned to stand before the emperor and answer for his supposed crimes of explaining what the Bible said. The emperor declared Luther an outlaw, banning his literature. And that's when he was rescued and went to live in disguise in a castle. Dressing in knight's clothing, he changed his name to Sir George and grew his hair and a beard and spent his time translating the New Testament. Again, it was published widely, meaning ordinary people could read the Bible for the first time. Luther then secretly returned to Wittenberg he continued to write books and translate the Bible. He also got married and had a family. Europe was buzzing with Luther's message about the Bible. Today, 500 years on, the truths of the Bible that Luther knew continue to impact millions of people. People who've come to know God personally, knowing the peace and forgiveness Jesus offers us. The forgiveness that Luther found is still available today. We can all be in a right relationship with God because of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's few historical events that continue to impact us more today than does what took place in the Reformation. The five guiding principles of the Reformation is what we've been studying in this month of October. These were the principles that drove this movement. Now, the, the key leaders of the Reformation, they would have looked at these five solas and said, wait, where'd you come up with those? And they're a compilation. Church historians and theologians have compiled these as being like the succinct uh, summary of, of what was taught and what was written about in this time. And so let me review for you what we've been studying in this month of October. First of all, sola scriptura, 
Sola Scriptura was Scripture alone. The idea that the Bible alone is our authority, not the church, not any one human person, but the Bible is our rule for all of what we believe and how we conduct ourselves. Sola Gratia is grace alone. Grace alone, we are saved by the grace of God alone, that it's a free gift. Sola Fide is faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not through good works. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. He's the only mediator between God and the human race. And then lastly, we find ourselves this morning looking at sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. It's the idea that we live for the glory of God alone. And you see, sola Deo Gloria is the natural outcome of the preceding solas. When you understand sola Scriptura and sola Gratia and sola Fide and sola Christus, it brings you to this point where you're giving glory to God, where you understand the glory of God and that it all should go to him. And so I want to begin our time together by talking about what is the glory of God. If you attend church any length of time at all, that's a phrase you hear fairly often, the glory of God. But if you were to pin a person down and say, but what exactly does it mean? Most of us would stumble a little bit with our words. Because even though it's a concept we're vaguely familiar with and it's words we're very familiar with, what exactly does it mean when we talk about the glory of God and when we say sola Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone? Let me give you a working definition, okay? And then we'll unpack it. A working definition for the glory of God. Here it is. The glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. When the holiness of God is made evident, <clears throat> when it's featured, when it's on display, that is his glory. I want to take you to a key verse here, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. In Isaiah's heavenly vision, the angels are saying this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And I want you to note how Isaiah shifts, how the angels shift here from holy to glory. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his, and you'd expect it to be holiness, right? But it shifts and says the whole earth is filled with his glory. In other words, when his holiness is on display, that is the glory of God. And so what does holy mean? Again, church word that's very, very common, but do we know exactly what it means? The literal uh, meaning or definition of the word holy as it's used in the Bible it means separated from the common. Holy means to be separated from the common. Let me give you a couple illustrations of what that means. When my wife Karen and I were married 36 years ago, we were given 
a beautiful, expensive set of china. And I think we've used it maybe 40 times. We don't eat hot dogs off the grill on it. We don't eat our Captain Crunch in the morning on it. Special occasions. Maybe Christmas Eve, maybe Thanksgiving dinner, maybe something like that. But you see, it's not our everyday dishes. It's been dishes that are separated from the common. They're set aside in a special cabinet. They're only pulled out every so often because they're separated from the common. And in that sense, that china is holy. It's not our everyday bowls and dishes, right? Let me give you another example. I've got a good friend who pastors a church up in Kenosha. And Matt's a little on the weird side. I love him, but he's a little weird, okay? And somebody in Matt's church gave Matt a pair of bright, sparkly gold Converse All-Stars, high-top Converse All-Stars gym shoes. And they're sparkly gold. And Matt keeps those in his office. And the only time he wears them is Sunday morning. And just before the service starts, he puts those shoes on and preaches in them. And then the moment the service is over with, he sits down in the front row and takes them off and puts on his other shoes. Those are his preaching shoes. All right? They're set apart, separated from the common. He doesn't play basketball in those shoes. He doesn't walk his dog in those shoes. He doesn't go to the grocery store in those shoes. They're separated for a specific purpose, separated from the common. And in a sense, what you could say is those sparkly gold converse high tops are holy shoes. That's the basic idea of holy, to be separated from the common. And so when we think about the holiness of God, let me give you some phrases to kind of sketch this out, okay? First of all, it means that God is wholly other, the other kind of holy, all right? Completely, wholly other. In other words, you've never met anyone like him. You've never experienced anything like them. God is completely different than anything you've ever conceived of, anything you've ever experienced. He's set apart from his creation. He's wholly other. Another way to phrase it is this, that he is the infinite one of a kind. That he's not one God among many gods, but he's the only true living God. And he's unlike anybody or anything you've ever experienced. And then the final thought is this. God's uniqueness as the only God. And so that's what it means when we speak of God being holy. And so when the holiness of God fills the earth for people to see, it's called glory. I love what John Piper wrote here. Look on the screen at this quote. John Piper said this, the glory of God is a way to say that there is an objective, absolute reality to which all human wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, and worship is pointing. 
We were made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring the infinitely admirable, the glory of God. To understand this a little bit more, I want you to go with me to the book of Romans chapter 11. The book of Romans is Paul's theological masterpiece, and he lays out uh, how God has provided everything we've needed in Christ Jesus, and that we're justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the book of Romans was so influential in the life of Martin Luther, and in fact, it was the primary scripture that was used to help him cross the line of faith and to come to understand what it really means to know Christ. And in fact, Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans is on my shelf up in my office. And so the whole book of Romans just was a real driving force in Luther's thinking and in the Reformation. And so Paul's been laying out how we have a tremendous need, that tremendous need was met in the work of Jesus Christ. And so then we pick it up now in chapter 11, near the end of the chapter, and and starting at verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. You see, God is inscrutable. You can't understand the ways of God. You and I as human beings, a lot of times when we come upon things that we can't understand, it scares us. When we're dealing with things we don't understand, it makes us uneasy. That's just the way we're wired, right? But this is the one thing where it should do the opposite for you. The fact that you can't understand God fully, the way that many times his ways seem really, really hard to understand, instead of causing us fear or anxiety, it should bring about confidence and strength. And here's why. How impressive of a God would God be if you understood him? I don't understand my wife half the time, right? I don't understand algebra or geometry or any kind of math, hardly at all, right? There's all kinds of things in this world I can't understand. But if I could understand God, he'd have to be pretty puny, wouldn't he? If Dave Corlew could wrap his brain around him, it was like, not too big of a God there, right? And I want to suggest to you, the fact that we can't understand God and his ways should impress us with how awesome he is. And the fact that God is way bigger than what we could ever understand. We can apprehend God, we can't comprehend God. And there's a distinction there. Apprehend is like, uh, you see the iceberg, but that's just 10% above the surface. The 90% below, we we can't even see. We, we, We know it's there, but we don't know anything about it. And that's the way it is with God. We apprehend God, we certainly don't comprehend him. It's not possible because he is so big and so holy. So going on, verse 34 For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Are you going to correct God? Are you going to tell him you did that wrong? Do you know things that he doesn't know? Do you need to tell him things because he would have missed it otherwise? Nope. Verse 35, and who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? In other words, God's not 
in debt to any of us. He doesn't, know, he doesn't owe anybody in this room anything. Verse 36, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Now look at verse 36. It says, for everything comes from him. In other words, he is the creator. It says that everything exists by his power. He is the sustainer of the universe. And then lastly, it's all for his glory. In other words, he is the ultimate goal. That all of creation points back to him. And life is all about him. He's the ultimate goal. And so his holiness on display, on display brings him glory. And that has huge implications for us. Let's keep reading in Romans. We just finished chapter 11. Now let's pick up the first two verses in 12. It says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. You see, folks, we are separated from the common. You're not like everybody else once you've crossed the line of faith. Once you've come to know Christ, you're not the same person. You have different values, different morals, different priorities. You're set apart from the common. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. That's the point being made here. So he says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. One of the most short-sighted things we do is this. We treat Jesus like a fire escape from hell. Like, oh yeah, I've come to know Jesus. Yeah, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Yeah, I've embraced Jesus. And now I don't have to be afraid to die because when I die, I know I won't go to hell. And we treat him like he's nothing more than a fire escape. But folks, it's God's will for you to be completely transformed. And so it begins with salvation. It begins with the forgiveness of our sins. But you see, it's God's will for us to be separated from the common. We're not supposed to be like anybody else anymore. And the way we love and the way we care and the way we live our lives are to reflect his holiness. And the way we live our lives are, is supposed to bring him glory. And it's God's will for us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy people in practice and to one day be glorified even as Christ was glorified. And so sola dea gloria is first about God's glory rather than us giving him glory, but we are to display this. Here's the deal. God has declared me holy through Jesus Christ. And now it's his purpose to grow me in holiness. That's his will for every one of us who have crossed the line of faith. To remain the same is not an option. To this extent, we're to be bringing glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat 
or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Can you think of anything more mundane and ordinary than eating and drinking? (laughs) Every person does it every single day. And yet even in things as common as that, we're to do it in such a way to bring glory to God. And it's a reminder to us there's no division of sacred and secular. Like sometimes we think, ah, sacred, it's when I'm reading my Bible. Sacred, it's when I go to the church. Sacred, it's when I'm praying with my family. But you know what Scripture teaches? Scripture teaches for those of us who are followers of Christ, all of life is sacred. So when you show up for work on Monday morning, when you're taking care of your home and your children during the week, when you're interacting with your neighbors, Anything you can think of, when you're on the internet, anytime, anywhere, whatever you're doing, even if all you're doing is eating Captain Crunch and drinking orange juice, it's to be done to the glory of God. All of life is about him. He's the ultimate goal. It all comes back to him. Let me summarize. We are not the center of the universe. He is. And folks, it's not about your comfort. It's not about your happiness. It's not about your success. It's about the glory of God and letting God glorify himself in your life, whatever may come. That in our attitudes, in our relationships, in the way we treat people, in the way we live our lives, it's reflecting his holiness and it's bringing him glory. Ultimately, it's not about us. It's about him. Does that make sense? That it's not about us, it's about him. I close with this verse, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Would you read that out loud with me? Let's read it out loud together, okay? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Arlington Countryside Church, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org.